0: i'm jr butler co-founder of the shift group and you're listening to merchants of change this is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson each week we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change what's up kid how we doing what's up jr how's it going dude i'm pumped we got we got my guy one, one of the one of the reasons i started shift group is on the call uh jimmy fahey from miro jim great to see you thanks for joining us today buddy yeah thanks for having me i'm happy to be here and congratulations on the success Absolutely, man. Well, you 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 laid the groundwork, pal. Uh, we've got we 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 matched your story with a bunch of other guys. You've got, you've helped us talk to a few people, so we're psyched to have you. Um. So a little bit of a little bit of background, John. J- Jim and I have known each other for uh, I don't want to age myself here, but like sixteen years. Um, Jim grew up in Massachusetts. He's a hockey guy. Uh, played at CM. He was a two-year captain won four state titles That's <laughs> Ridiculous! <laughs> before going to Northeastern. He was a three-time captain for, for uh, the Huskies. And then he played 92 games in the NHL and, and finished up in Europe like my brother. Um, so, Jim, thanks for joining us, buddy. Pumped to have you.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Um, yeah, just looking forward to, you know, kind of talking a little bit about my experiences and uh, hopefully it helps others kind of... You know, jump into you know the work that you've done and paving the way and making that transition in a tight time frame. It's a there's a huge need for it, and I think you know there's a lot of companies out there that will certainly benefit from uh, you know the skill sets that athletes bring to corporate America.
0: Absolutely. So, so Jim, from a structure perspective, we like to talk like athletic background, and then we get into all the fun sales stuff. So, um, I was uh, I was checking out your hockey BB page. And I saw your your senior year at Northeastern, forty six points as a D man. Um, what was that season like, dude? That must have been unbelievable. Yeah, it was a, a lot of fun. I mean, um, as you know, you know, playing
1: college hockey in New England, uh, it's a dream come true. And you know, it's it was one of those times in your life you you'd do what you could to get back and have another one of those. Um, but really, just. Uh, you know, the thing that kind of rounded out was we had a great team. Um, you know, great leaders on that team and, and a lot of folks that, uh, you know, really bought into, you know, Northeastern hockey and really changing the culture there. And, uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, the success is a lot that has to do with the, the people around you. So, you know, Leon Hayward, Chris Lynch. I mean, you know, all these folks, uh, you know, just great people. A lot of them are coaching or and Chris is a pilot for Delta now and, uh, you know, great lifelong friends, and, and it started with those experiences in college. You know, the success in that season, or the the fun we had in that season, had to do with, you know, just uh, like I said, changing the culture. And you know, I had a lot of have a lot of lifelong friends from that. When you share experiences, and uh, you know, it's just it was a great experience, and, and something, uh, you know, as you know, going back to do it again would be
2: amazing. But uh, we have to grow up, unfortunately. <laughs> so, Jim Jr. was telling me you won four state titles, and then you were captain in college for not just your senior year, like most people, but three years. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's kind of, that doesn't happen. I don't think at any level.
1: Yeah. You know, um, you know, so for me, it wasn't an expectation. I I ended up going to Northeastern because I was their first choice. And anytime, you know, I was, I was looking at beanpot schools. I, you know, talked to Harvard, BC, BU, and really BC made choices to have somebody else be their first choice. And, um, you know, that was Brooks orpic at the time. And at BU, it was Chris Diamond. Great players and everything else. And, um, you know, but Northeastern was really my opportunity to be that go-to individual and and kind of, you know, help change the culture there. And Bruce Crowder, you know, brought me in. Paul Kanata, Jamie Rice, great leaders at Milton Academy and Babson as well. Um, and so I made that that choice to go there. And it was a surprise to me, to be honest with you, as we kind of you know went from our freshman year to sophomore year to be asked to be an assistant captain sophomore year and a captain you know junior and senior year and um i really didn't think much about it other than just you know continuing to try to lead by example and and um you know we had a great structure though like i said before we just had some great people um you know that were dedicated to building the program and and dedicated to really winning hockey games and um you know, so it was just kind of right place, right time, I guess you could say, and just
0: trying to do the right things. So that is, I mean, that's incredible as a sophomore to be given that leadership title. Um, That's like really special. And obviously like you've taken that leadership on to the next level, which we'll get in a little bit later. One thing I always like to ask defensemen because there's like one reason and one reason only that I got to play college hockey. And it was because my, my D partner my junior year was Keith Yandel, so I had, like, 24 points. I think I had 23 second assists and one goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I always love to know, like, who was who your favorite D partner that you had in your career? Oh, boy. And why? Um, <laughs> I had a lot of them. Um,
1: in college, I would say it's probably uh, Joe Mancuso or uh, Rich Spiller. Um and the reason it was Joe Mancuso, I and mean, it's hard to compete with your experience with Keith Yandel. I mean, Keith grew up in the same town as I did. Uh, obviously, you know, his family, great, great family. Uh, Brian, very successful as well. And both awesome, awesome hockey players. Um, but, I, you know, I would have to probably say Joe would be my choice because uh, Joe had a way of creating space out there. He was a walk-on at Northeastern. And, um, you know, just earned it every single day. And I played with him quite a bit. And, um, you know, the, the experience was awesome because he, he did his job and he expected me to do my job. He'd hold me accountable. And, um, you know, he was just, you know, always there for you. He was reliable, steady, um, you know, never got hurt. was there every time he needed him. So I would probably say Joe Mancuso in college.
2: So, Jim, uh, a lot of our listeners are student athletes and they're all, you know, trying to get to that level of playing professional in whatever league it is, but can you talk a little bit about your student life at Northeastern and what, what you were like? And I, I don't know what it's like at Northeastern, but, uh, you know, some schools, it's, it's hockey first and yeah. second. So can you talk a little yeah, bit well, about
1: that? That's not the case at Northeastern. I can tell you, I can assure you that. Um, and I and I'd go back to probably Capitol Memorial. Um, you know, my father was, and my mother were instrumental and basically put me in a situation where, you know, I didn't get one without the other. And so they were very very clear and if they were paying for school and and giving me the ability to you know have the platform to learn and grow as an athlete and a student um that I wasn't going to be playing hockey if I wasn't on honor roll and that was something they said really from the the beginning and so you know both my, my mom was a nurse worked nights my dad was a, a a tile guy and worked days and so I learned work ethic from them so that was really the thing is you know, coming in from, from CM to Northeastern, it was really instilled in me. And like, you know, you got to get the grades first. If you don't do that, you know, you can't focus on, you know, the hockey side. And so, um, that was a key for me. And, and you know, Northeastern did a really nice job. I mean, and JR, you probably had something very similar. Like, you know, we had to complete X amount of hours a week in study halls. And it just, you know, it kind of got in front of the fact that. You know, you need your grades first. That's first and foremost. If you do that, you know, your time on the ice is dependent on you know how well you play. Um, But without that foundation, you just you won't play. So um, I took a lot of pride in in making sure I invested the time in study hall and and getting on a roll through college, uh, and really making sure that that wasn't in the way of you know ice time and other things.
0: I love like I I couldn't agree more, Jim. Like the (laughs) the habits that I developed. Like and listen, I think CM's probably very similar. It's like forced habits. Like you, you have to, you have to get your your stuff done in school. Like Cushing, Cushing was a little different situation because we lived there, but they forced us to be at our desk every night, Monday through Thursday or Sunday through Thursday, eight to ten. So like I developed that habit as a fifteen to nineteen year old, and like even now, like I find myself usually working. From eight to ten as like a natural instinct so um it's definitely makes it makes a huge difference and it's followed me in my my regular career as well um unfortunately like john and i never got to play professional sports we both stopped at the college level i'm super curious like coming from college into the pro level especially at the level you were at like what were some of the habits that you developed to become like, you know, we'll talk about this later about being a professional salesperson, but being a pro, right? Like what were, what were those things that, that were different in college and some of the things that were the same?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, as you kind of progress, what I learned really, really quickly, whether it was the hard way or, or just identifying, you know, maybe some of the gaps that teams needed was your, your skill sets have to change. And you know this, JR. every job you have, your skill sets have to change. You can't solely rely on what you learned in the past and 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 hope that that gets you you know to where you want to be in the future. And so you know coming out of college, you know you said I, I was you know on the ice a lot, played an offensive role from the back end, and then you know getting to San Jose um, as an eighth round draft pick, and looking at you know a lineup that had you know Mike Brathg, Brad Stewart, Scott Hannon, um, you know a bunch of Brian Marchmont obviously, just passed, Um, you know, they didn't really need somebody (laughs) that was, uh, you know, hanging on to the puck for too long or or trying to do too much on the front end. Uh, What they needed was, you know, somebody that could fill a role and, and just be reliable. And so one of the things that I learned early on is just identify the gaps. Like, what is it that, you know, in your new role that needs to be, you know, changed from maybe a weakness or an opportunity to a strength? Right. And and when you identify those things, really, that's, you know, those are the things that you need to focus on, the things that become priorities um, and working on your game in that way. And so for me, that was that was critical. Um, I was fortunate enough at San Jose. And, and unfortunately for Brad Stewart, if you remember back in 2002, he got a concussion. Uh, San Jose was picked to win the Stanley Cup and Brad got a concussion. And that really gave me the opportunity to, to make an impact on the power play, but I had to earn that with Daryl Sutter being your coach. Um, you weren't just going to kind of walk in and get on the power play. That wasn't how it worked. And so they, they made some trades, brought in a couple people. And, uh, what I identified as the gap is like, you know, you need to make an impact. So I started to, you know, meet with Chris Nyland and learn how to fight a little bit and then do some of those things. And so, and not that I was going to, you know, at, you know, six foot and a half and two hundred and ten pounds, you know, make a huge impact. But just the willingness to fill those gaps and the willingness to play any role to make the team, uh, you know, was something that I learned early on in any job is you know identify why you're there and then focus on those priorities
2: to make the team stronger. So you mentioned Jim a lot of legendary names right there. And <laughs> yeah. mentorship is, is big in this in this podcast. It comes up a lot whether it's in sales or hockey or athletics but can you talk a little bit about some uh some of the mentorship aspects of your early days in, in hockey yeah you
1: know looking back john it's interesting like and you know jr like uh we saw this when we started to work together when, when i was at emc and you were at ici um there's a lot of great people that have done the work and laid the foundation for us to be able to be successful and as i look back i think of people like jamie Shepard who like even when I mess something up for a customer at EMC, you know, Jamie was one of those people that said, hey, don't worry about it. We'll fix it. And, you know, there are other people as I go back and to your question around hockey that as I reflect on that, um, I think one of the people that made the biggest impact on my career, um, you know, was, was Brian Marchmont. And, and obviously I said like, you know, he just recently passed at 53. It was awful. Um, but, but Mush was one of those people that, you know, really took me under his wing. And, and showed me that you know, mistakes are gonna happen, right? Like you just, what do you do next? Like you just don't make the same mistake twice. You know, if you're gonna do something, do it as hard and as fast and with all your energy that you have. Um, him, you know, another name I would say is Adam Graves. Uh, gravy would take us on dinner on road trips. And, you know, obviously I, I grew up and, and finally had a few dollars in my wallet and I wanted to pay for the meal. I've never seen an individual more upset with me trying to pay, or another young player trying to pay for a meal. It just he was not going to have it, and that was his way of saying, like, "Hey, listen, I earned this, and you know, you need to understand, like, that there's there's a pecking order here." So I would say Adam Graves, Brian Marchment. Um, I ended up living with Kyle McLaren for quite some time on the road. Uh, he was another one that really kind of took me under his wing and and showed me, you know, what a young player in the NHL was, and and how to kind of you know go about your business and do your job and uh, you know not be too loud don't don't attract too much uh, attention, but there were a lot I mean Joe Thornton, Scott Hannon used to let me live in his house in San Jose. Joe Thornton was another one that um, we were the same age I, I think I was actually three months older than him, and uh, speaking of that John, his beard is probably the only one that rivals yours right now but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I you know.
0: Just that's another
1: like great person that like we had a lot in common. You know, he uh, obviously started in Boston, and we we knew a lot of the same people. And so, you know, just he was another individual that kind of you know took me under his wing, um, and and you know just kind of gave me the space that I needed to be part of something special. And I think that's um, yeah, that's probably the the mentors I would look at. I mean, I can't stress enough that you know there's a there's a ton of people, uh, Danny McGillis. Um, you know, I could keep going on, on individuals that had, had impacts, but um mentorship's huge.
0: It's it's so crazy to me how the lessons you learned in like college and your pro career, and the same thing for me, like how they translate into the working world, right? Like talking about like finding your role, you know, getting over getting over mistakes, right? Like, you know, like uh Ted Lasso, be a goldfish, right? Um and even like even like senior guys stepping up and like paying for dinner, like it seems like a little thing, but like you end up doing that when you get older, right like I remember chef didn't let me pay for anything like my first three years at i c i and then when I got over to turbo into leadership, you know when i when when I went out with younger sellers, it was always like I was picking up the tab every time, and I know they appreciated that, so like those are things that showed up in your in your working life, which is that's probably a good time to transition. So that's when Jim, you and I met. I think I'm pretty sure I was in Franklin the day you interviewed with Jimmy Mac, uh, and I remember hearing like, "Oh, Jimmy Fahey's here." And I, I obviously I know who you were growing up in Boston playing hockey, and I was like, "That's so that's so badass." But like, you stepped into an SA role, a sales associate role, right? Like, you went from you know jets and, and flying all over Europe to to cold calling what how jarring was that lifestyle change for you we have a lot of kids going through that right now and and I'm just super curious to hear what it was like from your perspective how much time do you have yeah it was uh,
1: it was um it was quite an experience um and you know we, we at the same time you have your home life right so we were having our our second child and you know starting a new career and you know that career involved you know over 100 dials a day in a 55 Constitution at EMC. Um, but really, I think you know it, it was a blessing to have that opportunity. The people that opened the doors for you to you know be able. I was actually I signed a two year deal to go back to Nuremberg and play. And I had met with Billy Scannell, um, and he basically opened the door for me to have the opportunity to earn a job there. And that's why I went to see Jimmy Mack, because I was like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna close the doors on hockey. Um, I need to make sure like that I know who I'm working for and what I need to do. And I had done a lot of investigation on sales and, you know, that goal orientated, like, you know, continuing to hit your marks So you mentioned, JR, you know, learning to fall down, fail fast, make those corrections, iterate, learn and grow. Um, and so when I met with Jimmy Mack, I just wanted to make sure that this was a, the right team for me, the right spot for me. And I actually, um, I had made a call two days earlier to Doug Wilson, who was the assistant GM to D- Dean Lombardi in San Jose, just to make sure the, de- the doors in the NHL had closed because <laughs> there was no looking back when I pulled into 55 Constitution in my uh, my three-year-old infinity because we needed to buy a second car. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, pulling up there was, um, was an experience. I mean, you're there with a, a ton of super sharp, uh, young... You know go-getters that uh have kind of spent the last four to five years in school just thinking about their sales career and learning and, and and really investing the time and so i was a bit of a um an anomaly if you will you know coming in and here's this 30 year old guy that's you know um you know having to get back in the classroom and learn to learn all over again in a new way um but you know again uh, met some great people, and and uh, you know they learned a lot from me, and I learned a ton from them. And it was all about competing, so I just focused on the task
0: at hand more so than you know the surroundings and being caught in a queue. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. And and is there's like no one better to start your career under than Jimmy Mack. That's, I mean, candidly, Jimmy. I don't know if you noticed it, but the name of the po- podcast is Merchants of Change, which is a Jimmy Mac. Yes jimmy Mac euphemism right like that's that's why we named it this um that's a, unreal was so like you know billy what were you like thinking sales from the get or was it like a meeting with billy that was like that's why i want to do sales like why why'd you choose sales out of everything you could have done yeah so i i ended up exploring a couple different
1: opportunities so uh, Jimmy Madigan, who at the time was, um, you know, working at Northeastern, became pretty friendly with him. He became friendly with my family. And I really leaned on him because he had a lot of experience in business, but also in professional hockey, right? As a professional scout and then the Dean of Endowment at Northeastern and, you know, head coach, athletic director. And so I looked at coaching. And to be honest with you, like after, you know, spending eight plus years in hockey, i don't I didn't really feel the passion to get back into coaching and 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 you know that's changed. I coach my kids now um but the passion wasn't there, and I needed to be able to get back to earning in a quick way and going to try to be a doctor or a lawyer was out of the question and so uh Jimmy Madigan kind of set me up with executives that he knew through his northeastern connections at i b m and e m c and I went down uh to visit with Billy Scannell and, and had a meeting with him. And the, the interview went from 30 minutes to two and a half hours. And he pushed back a flight that he was taking to San Fran. And I was like, whoa, like talk about a commitment. We had a lot in common. Uh, his dad, my grandfather worked in the same place at Edison back in the day. Um, and really just like he gave me the opportunity. So, you know, what I realized is like the same type of people we talked about in hockey, like those that sacrifice, those that do the simple things, they're the same leaders that are in sales. Right. They value teamwork. They value execution. They value hard work. They value coaching and curiosity. Um, and so that it just it it was almost decided for me where I could build a career in this if I just do the same things, learn again, invest the time, make the right sacrifices. Um, and it just was the right fit because you know it's very similar. And that's why I think what you guys are doing is awesome around or JR went around, you know, shift is there's such a need for those driven uh, people that know how to succeed and fail fast in in the world of you know tech sales and sales
2: in general. Can you talk to? Well, sure. I want to pick on that a little bit because a ton of our listeners and, and candidates at Shift are coaching. Like you know, a lot of former athletes they get into either coaching or working yeah. at fitness centers or gyms, and they're, they try to keep the uh, the athletic dream alive, if you will. And can you talk a little bit about the difference between you know? I'm sure coaching is is very lucrative, but the opportunity to earn in sales, you know, that's what a lot of yeah. athletes are wondering about. They're so one of Billy's the sales tactics
1: like was um, he grabbed this, it was probably like four inches thick and it was, you know, computer paper, spreadsheet type of, you know, Excel spreadsheet that had every single sales rep at EMC at the time and their earnings. And he plopped it on the table in front of me and he said to me, he's like, hey, I'm not saying you're going to be in the front page of this book or the back page of this book. But as far as a career and you being able to provide for your family and you being able to provide for others, create opportunity. I'm a big Bill Russell fan. If you, if you look at Bill Russell, he never talked about how he played. He always talked about how his play made the team better or like how other people kind of made him better. And, you know, for me, that booklet, I'll never forget that it on the table. It was heavy as heck. And and kind of going through it and just kind of understanding like, man, it's up to you what you make of this. Whether you're the last page or the first page, it's the same thing as being in athletics. You want to stop playing as a mighty might or do you want to stop playing as a uh, as somebody that makes the highest levels in the world? And so, you know, the. The opportunity to earn a lot is there, and it is all dependent on the effort you put in, and and you know where you're willing to put yourself out there to to learn and and grow.
0: What what advice, Jim, would you give to the candidates we're working with that are making that transition? You made back in that like that last phone call to San Jose and the drive down, you know, four ninety five to Constitution Boulevard. Like, what if if you could go back, like, what's one thing that you would like say? Hey, make sure you think of this or You know, take this perspective or or develop this habit. Like, what's your biggest piece of guidance for those folks that are going through the same transition you went through years ago? Yeah, I mean, I think
1: like putting yourself out there, and you know, as you know, Jr. You alluded to before, like the people you meet along the way, the mentors you had in athletics, like they want to help you. Like, I want to help people that you're bringing in, Jr. Like, I want to see these people be successful, and that's just innately like that's that's a human characteristic for good people, like. To have. So don't be afraid to put yourself out there. The other thing I would say is like, change can be scary for people and it comes at different levels. Go, go at it as fast as possible. Like, I mean, I remember in Inside Sales, like, there was a, a woman that sat next to me and um, she got off a call and she was super smart. She got off a cold call and she was crying because somebody yelled at her. And so I was just like, you know what? Like, why not call this person back? let's just call them back and make sure like they leave with EMC being like, obviously we got them at a bad time, whatever. And so like, that was, I mean, I was scared inside, but I was like, you know what, we're going to let this fly and see what happens. So I would just say, you know, charge at change fast, like try different things, fail fast. Um, you know, invest the time to learn, like don't, you know, jump ship. Um, you know, and that's why I think, you know, you know, shift is such a an awesome opportunity. Like, Get in, learn from others, build that kind of you know uh, camaraderie around you and people with the same experiences. But hit
0: change fast, hundred percent. Well said, dude. That. that was awesome. Uh, you, Jim, like I was there, right? You went from that SA role to a quota carrying role pretty quickly. I think you know partially it was the timing of EMC doing that resegmentation, right, with the inside sales. But I think a lot of it, like we we deal with a lot of kids. That are more mature. They've done another job. They've been a teacher. They sold insurance. They did other things. But every even the kids that come right out of school, they all want to get to a closing role as fast as possible. What do you think... It's kind of two questions. What's the best way to get off to a fast start beyond what you just talked about? Because I think that's a huge piece of it. And then like, what are the areas of development for this? The, like, you, You're now in sales leadership. You've hired a ton of salespeople. Like what are the areas of development that new new salespeople need to lean into more? So it's kind of a two-part question. Best way to get into a closing role and the areas of development you should most focus on when you when you first start in sales.
1: Yeah. Um so I think I think for me, um, the best way to get into a closing role and and kind of you know elevate your career is like I always talk about sacrifice and so you're going to get the curriculum if you start in the right places or you work with a group like yourself. You're going to you're going to understand that. But it's what you do when the doors close and nobody's looking, right? Invest the time to learn, um, you know, and, and you know, re- read about like, you know, the characteristics, traits, skills that you need to do the job appropriately. And it's not just the job you're doing. It's the job you want. So don't stop setting those goals. Set those goals and keep the timelines tight. I always look at things zero to six months, six to 12, 12 to 18 and then beyond um, and, and put something quantifiable around those goals. So there's a time frame you want to get to the point next and then understand what the pay is. Do you go from 50 to 100? Do you go from 75 to 100? And then keep yourself like on those tracks to say, like, these are the goals I want to get to and what I want to be earning. So I think if you continue to just that behavior around setting goals and attaining them is the fastest way to get there. Um, As far as like the second part of that question, JR, like, you know, I talk about sacrifice. I I think like, I mean the focus. You you can't do everything. And so just, you know, making sure that like, you know, when you get there, you're focused on the, the things that you can be great at. Meaning like, you know, if it's presentation skills, if it's Qualification, discovery frameworks, leading with empathy, um, you know, really just kind of focus on those learnings. And, you know, I I mean, for me, again, I always go back to like when I think about the past and reflect, you know, people that made an impact. I mean, Trevor Bobwick, as you know, and I spoke to him this morning, you know, uh, again, it was somebody that like he went through this learning process in a different way at a different time. I picked his brain daily. I mean, I would go buy him a beer and we'd sit there and talk about the things that he did uh, to be successful at that next job. So always thinking ahead. It's kind of a curse at the same time because you can't really enjoy what you're doing as much as you would be able to, but it's, it's, it's how you get through it the fastest and be successful at those different levels.
2: That's, that's really solid, Jim. And uh, can you talk a little bit about your leadership roles? Um, you're in one right now. Can you talk about what you what you have the biggest impact on in your organization and what you think you're, you know, striving for each time. I'm, yeah, just I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big in believer in,
1: in leading by example. Uh, like I, I, off, I tell people all the time, like, I'm going to make more mistakes than you will. That gives you the right to fail fast. And like, I won't make the same mistake twice. And then I think the simplification is important. Um, this is not rocket science. You know, like people buy from people and they have to be they have to know their brief they have to be approachable they have to listen they have to have a work ethic so they they're trustworthy um but really like just prioritizing those simple things and then filling in the gaps with like you know just that learning i mean for me um i've followed the people that have helped me along the way and so i'm just trying to emulate what i've learned from those leaders and and i think simplification especially in saas like Everybody thinks you need to be everything to everybody, but actually, if you just narrow your focus to the places that you can make an impact with the personas that you can impact, you know, you get a lot of value out of the relationship and and
0: out of what you mean to their organization and the outcomes you can drive with whatever you're selling. That's, I mean, keep it simple, stupid, right? Like same thing that my dad said to me before every game. Like literally. It, it works. Like if, if you can do that, have focus, and, and execute against what you know you're really good at, it's it's a game changer. Um, I remember Jim going from being a leader of a team to being a leader of leaders, um, and hiring new leaders was something that I made a lot of. Like to your point about making mistakes, like your tendency as a when you're first hiring leaders to lead teams that are underneath you. At least for me, was I'm going to look for the best individual contributor and I'm going to make them a manager. Um, and it was a huge, it was a huge mistake. And, and I think we both, you know, both me and the, the manager were like, Hey, maybe this wasn't the right move. Like we got to look at it differently. Can you talk a little bit now that you're in like a, you know, and you've been in more of a leader of leaders type of uh, role. What do you look for when you are trying to identify like People that are individual contributors that you want to make leaders. Like, what are the things that you look for in those new leaders of of people? Yeah, I mean, we've all made those mistakes, Jr. I've made them
1: multiple times. Um, uh, you know, I, I think for me, I look for a couple different things. I want to see people that are passionate about success. Um, you know, passion. Passion can kind of hide a lot of different. Uh, you know, challenges along the way. And I want I want somebody that's going to bring the same approach to other people's success. And, and they have to have a passion and the, it has to be around coaching. We, I don't need people that can read spreadsheets. I need people that want people to get better, can identify gaps and can, can coach those individuals to be better. I think the other thing for me that's really important is like curiosity. Um, you know, people that want to get to that next level and show people how to do it. Like, you know, it's not the first level question getting an answer. It's like, all right, now unpack that for me. Like dig deeper into that. Like that level of curiosity just shows me that they'll invest the time with customers and with um, you know, the the people that they're coaching, the people that they're leading. And, you know, in this world, things are changing so quickly. So that, you know, curiosity is just keeps them ahead of the curve in my mind. And then I I think the other thing, and I alluded to it before, is um is teamwork like I want to understand? You know what they feel their their role is. If they think their role as a leader is to orchestrate, you go this way or that way, not for not for our organization. Like, what impact can you make on this team, and how are you going to make this team better? Like a force multiplier. Um, you know, those are some of the things. Other other things like you know, people that are self-starters, right? How have you talk about an obstacle you had in your life? What did you do to change your approach? And then, what is something that you've done difficult that you started on your own? And and I'm looking there for impact. I'm looking for impact in those discussions.
0: I, I always I always used to say to my new leaders, I need you know because you come in, especially when when Turbo was really a rocket ship. We were moving a lot of like 24, 25 year old kids into management roles, and they think to your point they think their job is to make to tell people what to do and the thing i always used to say to them is like listen you now work for your seven sales reps your job you have one job and one job only and it's to make them successful their job is not to make you successful your job is to make no. them successful and if you come with that mindset into a leadership role i think you're you're going to manage people differently you're going to talk to them differently and you're just going to think about, like, how you fit into the team in a different way. And I think those, those people that pick that up quickly are wildly successful. And, and people will
1: want to work for them no matter where they go. They, you know, and it's, uh, it really just, it builds that culture. And, you know, you, you never worry about those individuals when you close the door behind you, because like, you always know that, like, the, that they're,
0: you know, kind of bringing the right culture. They're bringing the right character to the situation. 100%. 100%. That's awesome. Uh-huh so i think uh we're getting here now to the last two questions um every every seller and i know like my answer to this um has one skill that they've developed that really makes them elite obviously jim getting to the leadership level you've gotten to you were a great seller as well what was like your number one skill that made you an elite seller it's a great it's a great question um you know for me it
1: this is going to kind of be a a, a capo to some extent i i 'd have to say time management I think you know you can always look at like you know pure skills negotiation presentation you know all of that um but for me, I think you know back to the keep it simple stupid, you need to be able to say no to things and you need to prioritize the the critical right you know not not everything needs to get done today. And I think, you know, making those sacrifices and it can be a curse, right? Like having a young family, starting a new career and trying to do it as fast as possible. And you know this, JR, like you have to sacrifice things. You have to have a great partner with you to say, like, man, I'm going to do this and be very clear on your targets. And I need help. I need you to help me here. And so having that a time management and really prioritizing the things that are important to you to get to those levels to provide for your family. I think for me is is probably the thing that's made the most impact.
0: It's it's so true that as a salesperson the only resource you don't you can't create more of is time and young sellers are are have a major tendency to waste their time in opportunities with people on accounts that they're never going to buy, yeah. right? And like I think it takes, it takes some, unfortunately, it takes some scars to like really learn your lesson there and go, you know what, I'm going to move on from this. I'm not going to talk about this deal in every single QBR for the next, you know, two years, (laughs) which, you know, sometimes I would let reps continue to talk about deals. I would never talk about those deals to my leaders because I knew they were never going to close. And I just needed the rep to learn themselves. And you know, this, right?
1: there's been many vacations where you're sitting in a room trying to close a deal at the end of the quarter. And, you know, when you reflect and, and kind of think about that deal, you're like, man, if I just asked the executive buyer two weeks before if it was possible to do this. And I mean, in many ways, not, hey, my expectation is this gets done this month. No, like I am setting expectations that we're doing this partnership this month. Like, are we aligned in that? And it's just having that, that courage to do that earlier. And then, you know what, it gives you the time to go invest in something else. Right. And that can be your career, your family, learning and growing all of those things. And I think it's, it's critical for people to have the courage to say no and say, you know what, like I, did, I buy the book, qualification, med pick, all this stuff, this is not going to come in and you have to be honest with yourself.
2: You, t- you took the words out of my mouth. Courage. I was going to say confidence. It yeah. takes a little bit of courage to be like, hey, I don't have time for this. Like, and you learning know, you it, learning think from. About it. Yeah. Anybody else but your time, because
0: you don't get it out. Absolutely. That's so, huge. Jim, you'll That's love huge. this one. So, my dad used to say to us when we were little, you know, hey, a, a lot of a lot of kids play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey mm-hmm. players, right? And, and you know, he was kind of embedding in us early. Basically, being a pro like taking everything, you're approaching everything in a way where you're not just playing hockey. You're a hockey player. You're prepared. You know, you're getting rest. You're practicing. You understand the competition. All those things. And we think that the highest the highest praise you can give a salesperson is calling them a pro. Like this this guy, this girl is a pro. For you, what are the things that that you meet a sales rep or you have a sales rep that works for you? What makes them a, a sales professional? What makes them a pro? Yeah, I, th- I think the first thing is they you
1: know they know their brief, as Billy Scanlon used to say. They know what they're talking about. They, they are dedicated to, to become an expert in that field, the subject matter expert, whatever you want to call them. But they know what they're doing, right? They play at the top of the game, no matter what the sport is, the, the instrument they play or the, you know, the, the job they have. Um, I think the second thing is, and I'd go back to it, is just leading by example. Um, You know, you can just see behind every professional or somebody that I would call a professional, they lead by example. There's a group of people behind them that is learning from that individual, right? That next level of leadership, that next level of individual contributor, you know, they're the ones that are wanting to go to dinner with the Adam Graves or Brian Marchments of the world. Um, and they're learning from those individuals, so the influence is there. They're making a big influence. So I think they play at the top of the game. They lead by example, and you can see the force multiplier in the influence they
0: have in an organization. That to me uh, is a pro. It's so true because it, it doesn't even ha- They don't even have to have captain or manager or director titles. Like some of my best leaders were sales reps that just did the right thing. They got. Very positive outcomes. A lot of that time, that was commission checks, and everybody else saw them and said, "You know what? I'm going to do what what she's doing. She's she's killing it. You know, she's coming in with a new bag every week. Like that's who I want to. That's who I want to mirror. So I love that. That's a really good way to describe it. That's the first time we've heard that one, um, Jim. Unreal conversation. So many great nuggets in here. I know our our, our guys and girls are going to really appreciate listening to this and. I'm going to, for- this one's one that I'm going to force as part of our training. So thank you so much.
1: I think this is great. I mean, you, you know, I think what you're doing with shift JR is, is awesome. I mean, there's such a need out there. I'm on both sides of it now. I know, you know, at Miro, we introduced you to the head of recruitment. Um, there's just such a yep. big impact that these folks can have in a tight time frame, And I think, uh, it's a great career, you know, it, um, you know, John is the same. And, um, I just think there's such a a need for this uh, in, you know, SaaS and in technology and all of sales. And so I think, um, yeah, if I can be of a help in any way, uh, let me know how I can can help.
0: Thank you, buddy. Thank you for joining us, appreciate you. Take care. Thanks, sir. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.